0: Hi, you were listening to Mobile Couch, and this is a show that is longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. <laughs> hey, that, that sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> this show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Good morning. And Ben Trengrove. Good evening. And myself, Jelly, aka Daniel Farrelly. And uh, this episode, we have a special, special, special guest, underscore David Smith from Developing Perspective. Hello, David.
1: Hello, thank you for having me. It's
0: really good to have you on. We've name dropped you a few times, and now we've actually get to chat to you, which is great. It's awesome. I'm very excited.
1: Yeah, it's. A, I'm excited too. It's a very comfortable couch. <laughs> it's
0: comfortable, isn't it? Especially for
2: Jake. Jake gets the most comfortable yeah. part of the I, couch. I'm actually about to nod off. It's that early in the morning. It's I'm, actually I'm getting light outside. I can tell. That comfortable.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very, very weird time for us to be recording. Normally we're recording at the other end of the day for everybody. But now that we're a multinational
2: podcast. Yeah.
0: So this week we kind of thought, well, it's, you know, the Apple Watch is about to be released. So why not talk a little bit about developing for it? And I mean, obviously it's going to be a little bit late for people to get started on an Apple Watch app if they want to get it shipped in time. See, I was kind of hoping I could squeeze one in. (laughs) No? But I still thought it might be interesting, and we definitely haven't got anything to say about it, but I think
1: David might. Yes, I've been spending a lot of time with it anyway. So I have things to say, whether they're good things, I'm not sure, but I have things to say.
0: So let's kind of maybe get started by talking a little bit about what you do for the people who don't know who you are. Why did you get into development in the first place?
1: Sure. So I'm an independent iOS developer, uh, whatever that means. Um, I've made my living making apps and selling them in the app store for about the last six years or so. Yep. I got into it initially because I just thought it would be fun. And at the time I was doing consulting work and was looking for something different and apps was that. I didn't really have any background on the Mac platform or Coco or Objective-C or anything. So I just, over vacation, got a book and made a tip calculator, I think, was my first sort of project. And um, since then, it's just sort of been keeping at it. And so that's what I do now, sort of full-time, is just making apps and putting them out in the App Store. Yeah. And you've got a lot of apps, like a lot of apps. I do, yes. It's, It's one of the things that I have a very short attention span. And so I tend to, if I have an idea... I'll jump from whatever it is I'm doing to working on that idea, and I'll make it, and I'll ship it, and I'll put it on the App Store, and some of them have done somewhat well for me, some of them have done horribly, um, but at the end, is, the end result is that I have a lot of apps, and i probably make my living from now somewhere around six or seven different apps in the App Store, so mm. um, it's quite a lot to keep, you know, sort of t- a lot of things to juggle and keep uh, keep going, but that's the way it sort of ended up working out well for me.
2: So- Um, I was kind of interested in this approach. What do you think is the hardest part of developing apps? Do you think it's the coding part or the thinking of ideas for apps and deciding what features should be in them and how to? market them and describe them to people and find an audience
1: I mean the hardest thing for me is probably the marketing side of things uh, turning the actual thing that I make in Xcode into something that's actually you know gonna generate revenue or be part of a business for me um, just because that's the part of what I do that is most sort of different than what I'm good at mm-hmm. you know the actual part of opening up Xcode you know file a new project and starting to code like that's 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 where I'm having fun that's where i'm enjoying it the most and that's where i'm that's the part that comes easy, comes most naturally and easiest to me yeah um, the hardest part is that once i have that is taking that and turning that into a product that is you know going to be part of a business that lets me continue to do the part that i, I love the actual the making part um long term and so yeah. that's sort of the trickiest part i think i can completely relate to that i think that um the coding part for me feels most natural as well
2: and i don't know i mean I don't know if it's just about what we're used to, or it kind of feels to me that the the other part about taking a software product and turning it into something that can generate revenue seems a little bit more random, that it's not as, I don't know, for me, that the programming part, there's a direct connection between the effort you put in and what you end up with. But the other part of it, you know, taking a finished software product and trying to turn it into a source of revenue seems a little bit more random, but some things um, achieve success and others don't. And there's obviously some correlation between how good an app it is in terms of the polish of the effort and the concept behind it. But it seems like there's something else as well, some sort of marketing magic, which I don't really understand.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very non-deterministic is the way that I tend to think about it, where it's you can put the same, well, you can ostensibly put the same inputs in twice and you'll get different outputs, whether that's because... You know, time has moved on, times have changed, the market was different, there was a different comp- different competitors, different you know, you understood the market differently. Um like there are so many intangible parts of the actual putting it out into the store and it finding a home that you can't control that you know it feels very out of your hands in some ways. And there's things you can do, in my experience, that you can do to minimize the non determinism of it, but you can never eliminate it. And you're always just kind of hoping that you know, when you launch your app that week, there isn't some other major, amazing new app that gets catches everyone's attention, or you know, the week before you launch, a competitor comes out with something that's way better than what you have been working on, or all those things that you just can't really are, that are beyond your control, that you just kind of have to work around. So you can just sort of do your best to be prepared, but you can't really control it, which is different than obviously with programming in a way that, you know, I'm the one who puts the code into the text file and. Once I you know, every time I run the app, it's going to sort of do the same thing because it's that's what programming is. And so it's, it feels a bit more comfortable in that way.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great way to describe it. So have you been surprised by which of your apps have achieved sort of financial success or were they the most successful ones, the ones you
1: felt most confident would be? The short answer is no. Insofar as whenever I've launched something, in the time that I'm launching it, I typically, you know, I'm excited about it. I think it's Cool and it's interesting and it's fun. And that's sort of generally why I made it. Um, You know, sometimes I make something just because I think it might have, you know, might find a niche or I think it's a unique opportunity or something like that. But, you know, usually I think it's exciting and uh, I'll put it out there. And I never really know if it's going to be a success until I put it out there, until I get, you know, get a sense of that first couple of weeks, um, especially, you know, where after the first week where maybe you've been able to generate sort of some, some, some amount of excitement or buzz or whatever you want to call it, the real test is a couple of weeks later when you see where sales settle down to, and it's whether they'll settle down to, you know, zero or whether they'll settle down to something non-zero. And obviously the more non-zero you can make it, the better it is, but I've never been able to really, really predict what's going to take off and what isn't. It's just sort of, you kind of have a, a vague gut and you have a hope, but it's just sort of ultimately out of your hands.
3: So how do you decide which ones to keep working on and which ones to update, you know, when a new iOS version comes out and things like that? Do you have an actual cutoff you use or is it based on which ones you just
1: enjoy working on? It's a little bit of just what I enjoy working on. It's not like it's a strict formula, but conceptually what I tend to do is and this is this dates back to when I used to be I used to do cons, you know web consulting in addition to iOS development. Is back then, in order for me to justify working on apps for the App Store, this was in the time you know sort of in that transition period where I was still doing contracting, as, you know, that at the time it was you know, Ruby on Rails consulting and working on apps. Um, I kind of made my apps into a client in the sense that you know the revenue that it paid me, it was essentially buying my consulting time. You know, to some approximation, and so the more revenue I was able to generate from my apps as they you know sort of gradually gained traction, that became essentially a client. You know, and so at a certain point, it's like okay, now I can spend a quarter of my time on my apps, and then it became I could work a half you know half of my time, um, and kind of it grew event eventually became you know my full time thing. And in some ways, I still kind of think about it that way, where when I'm looking at doing updates, when I'm looking at a big major update comes out, so you know, so essentially every year between WWDC and October is always a very very busy time for me because I'm going through and you know working through seven or eight apps um, in terms of doing updates is you know a lot of work, and I'll tend to prioritize at least to a first approximation the apps that roughly in order of the revenue that they generate, and so if you know there's a couple of my apps that do the vast majority of my income and so I will tend to prioritize making sure that they're in great shape for that update and then just kind of work backwards from there um in terms of you know the things that sometimes are even are things that I enjoy or that I use more. i uh, will but if you know they're not really doing much on the business side, then they'll tend to be sort of deprioritized. Um, away from that, and then just kind of mixing into that is always whenever, especially around iOS updates. It's looking for new opportunities, looking for new things that I can do that aren't just extensions to my current stuff. You know, what, what is there a new API, a new piece of hardware, a new something that I can take advantage of and trying to build apps around those? Um, that's kind of generally how I split my time and work out what makes sense to work on next, and it's, it sort of works, but it's just ultimately. You just, I just tend to work on something until, you know, I lose interest with it and jump onto the next thing and then jump back and forth. And I feel fairly comfortable doing that. And so it kind of works for me.
3: Yeah. I really like the way that you look at it with the, you know, taking over from your client work. We've had previous guests who have used the same strategy and it sounds like it's a good one.
1: Yeah. I think it's the best. Most people I know aren't able from the sort of right out of the gate to live on their app store income, just sort of right out the gate. Because... I mean, maybe if you've been working on an app nights and weekends in your spare time for long enough that it hasn't really had an impact on anything else. And then, you know, you launch it and it's a wild success. And suddenly you can quit your job, stop doing client work, whatever it is that you're, you were doing before. Um, like, maybe that's happened, but there's honestly not that many many people that I can think of who've had that experience that you almost always have this transition period where you're kind of trying to get the legs underneath the, you know, your, your product, your, the product side of your business. And so trying to find some way to reasonably balance that, you know, and typically it's, you have a certain goal that you're trying to hit as a business that's, you know, your living expenses or whatever it is. It seems like it's a way that works to gradually transition that um, from one to the other. And then if your goal is to do it, one thing full time, you know, then you can just keep doing it until you hit that point, hopefully, where you know, your product revenue is enough that you don't have to do the other things.
0: So, do you think that that means that there's um, there's more to sustainability? Like, because we, you know, the de- the developing community kind of tends to get on these tracks where they talk about, you know, how the best way to, you know, have sustainability within an app or, or product or whatever. Do you think that that sort of means that there's more to it than just the decision as to whether you put, you know, in app purchases or an upfront price or whether or not it's 50 bucks or. Ten bucks, or do you think there's more to it than that? That that there is a level of strategy involved.
1: Oh, definitely. And sustainability. I mean, it's it's something that I think it it's a discussion that we have endlessly in many ways because it's where everybody's definition of sustainable and definition of success tends to be different, mm. um, and so it's easy to argue past each other. Um, and that's part of why I think we that, you know, this sort of, it's not, it's never going to be settled. It's never going to be something that we're like, yes, this is, this is the answer to, if you want to build a sustainable software business, this is the approach to take because everyone's, everyone's answer to that is going to be different. Um, and yeah, I think you have to start from looking for your own situation, for your own goals, for your own life situation, whatever it is, like, what it is that you're trying to accomplish and why it is that you are trying to accomplish that. You know, is it you want to make your living exclusively from products because you think that'll be cool? That's probably a bit of a soft reason to be there insofar as like just because it's cool, it's that, that's not motivating. That's not tangible. Or if it's you want to do that because you want to be have more of a passive income or you want to be making, you know, sort of more taking an investment approach where you're taking a risk now in the hopes of being paid off later, which is largely what you know, product work is? Or would you rather do something that's much more straightforward and it's you know, exchanging your time for a definite amount of money, which is what full-time employment or contracting is? And everyone's answer for where they are on that, on that spectrum is different. And for me, the reason I end up doing what I'm doing is uh, the thing that I value most is consistency, you know, it works out well because it's how I'm sort of wired that I can manage it this way. But the reason I pursued this and continue to pursue it is that it allows me to have consistency over time. That I've been doing this now for six years, and I'm still able to, you know, to make a consistent, solid living from it. Because when you have six products, each of which doing something. You know, in aggregate, with one goes up, the other and another goes down, you end up in the same place. And for me, that's what I'm optimizing for. You know, so my strategy is to have as broad and a diversified a portfolio, I guess you could say, as I can, and mm-hmm. that works for me. And if your goal, though, wasn't just sort of, I mean, in some ways, you could say like my business is kind of boring. You know, my income doesn't fluctuate very much, which is, you know, great. I love it, but I'm also not putting myself in a position where I'm going to have runaway successes, where I'm going to have these wild overnight, you know, sort of big explosive things, I'm more likely just going to keep plodding along doing the thing that I do. And for me, that works. And that's what I'm optimizing for. And the strategy and approach I'm taking of having lots of little small, you know, making lots of little small bets, that's the kind of the result that that ends up with. The important thing is just to understand, you have to be able to concisely answer what it is that you're trying to do it and why it is you're trying to do it before you're ever going to be able to work out a strategy that's probably going to be successful for you.
2: I think that's a really great way of looking at it. And I love the sort of financial investment analogy of having a uh, a diversified portfolio. Because um, I think there's, there probably is a lot of parallels Yeah, as you've you've said yourself, that you're sort of placing a lot of small bets and able to spread the risk. And I think that you, you were saying that you feel that it's unlikely that there's going to be sort of take off runaway success. But I think that uh sometimes you reflect on which apps do achieve that. And to me, as I said before, it feels kind of random. But the necessary precondition for it is that you're there and you've got apps in the store that have the opportunity to, to gain a, a larger market. So having a, a portfolio approach like you've got seems really sensible because you've got you know not just one one app that might have a chance of achieving that sort of runaway success, but lots of them
1: sure and I mean you have to like the first the precondition for success is like level, like at like pr- priority zero is being able to ship being able to put something together and put it into the store um and I interact with a lot of people who are trying to get into it, and the, the th- in some ways even the biggest challenge is just that for getting that first thing in the, through the door and mm-hmm. learning all the lessons that you get from how hard it is to actually go from an idea to a fully formed product, you know, in the store with the appropriate marketing materials and all the things that you're doing, like the number of steps that you have to go through and the things that you have to do to even meet that basic precondition is not insignificant. And so whenever I talk to somebody, the first advice I always say is if they're trying to get into this, like the first thing you need to do is to get something shipped as fast as you can, as quick as you can and understand that process. Yeah. I, I I was
2: surprised the first app I shipped at what proportion of my time was spent coding versus proportion spent doing the other stuff that was required to ship the app. And my first app was absolutely trivial, and it was way back in the early days of the app store when I think there was less extra work needed. I can see Jelly racking his brains to try and figure out what my first app was. I'm
0: feeling like it was the one where you f- flipped between the animal pictures. Oh, that's
2: actually still in the store. No, <laughs> it was, there was enough. a puzzle one. There was no, a puzzle see, there one. was one even before that. So oh my I have gosh. two apps still in the store as my own products. But um, my problem has been that my personal products can't afford my time now. So I don't know. When you talk about treating your products as clients, my products are clients that just can't pay. So they're the worst kind of clients. <laughs> 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 yeah. Hence, they've just sat there and languished But my first app was actually a um, ring and shoe size converter So if you're shopping for a ring, different countries around the world use different sizing schemes And it was an app that would let you convert between the Australian ring sizes and US ring sizes or UK ring sizes So that if you were like looking at a ring online and you know your own size and your own scheme You could translate it to a international one 99 cents. Specific. It was very specific. (laughs) (laughs) And that took a a disproportionate amount of time to go through the, you know, the code signing and uploading screenshots and writing marketing materials and, oh, I need to put in a link to a website. I should have a website for it and all of that stuff. Uh, It was like an hour to actually code the app. (laughs) I think I only ever sold like 100 copies and then pulled it down because I'm embarrassed that it even ever existed. But, you know, I'm sure we all feel that about our first apps, maybe. Mine's still in the store. Yeah, you can start somewhere.
0: Yep. So maybe we should uh, actually kind of turn this towards the original topic and talk a little bit about the Apple Watch. So, what got you into uh, the idea for developing for the Apple Watch, David? Like, what uh, excited
1: you about it? So, I guess there's two things. And so, the first and the first is probably the, the most straightforward is that I've kind of pitched my tent in Apple's I don't know, pitched my tent in Apple's garden. I don't know, something like that. This is where I make you know, this is where I work, this is where my apps are, this is where I make my living, and so when they are clearly making a concerted definite push, they're putting a lot of effort and marketing capital around something, then i'm going to be you know i'm going to pay attention i'm going to work to make sure that I stay current with that, even if it weren't something that I was going to use and use a lot myself hmm. um and maybe in some ways a best example of that in the past was the iPad, something that I've spent a lot of time developing for, but I never really use personally. Like I use my iPhone constantly, but I hardly ever use an iPad, but I have iPad apps and my, you know, my apps are universal and I do those things because that's part of being sort of a good citizen on this platform. And so, you know, Apple's making a watch. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn how to develop for a watch. I, I think the watch was also, in and it's in a second way, more compelling to me because it's a device that I can see myself using in my day to day life. It's something that I can understand. It's like I look at it, and like obviously, I I don't own one yet. It's it's I won't really know if this is the case until I actually have one. But I can see the role that it can play in my life. And so, when it was like, you can make apps for this. It's like, all right, let's do it you know, I I wanna be part of that and especially I wanna be part of it early on. I didn't take a wait and see approach to this where I was just, you know, okay, well, WatchKit, whatever it was, beta one came out. I wasn't like, okay, let's just hold back and see, you know, see how this all turns out. It's like I downloaded beta one and I started making apps. Um, you know, sort of as that first day that I could because I wanted to get good at it. Because I think there there's something about it that is interesting and compelling to me about taking the experiences that I have on my phone and making them smaller and simpler and more ubiquitously available to me that I think will be something I will enjoy doing personally. And so hopefully that will also translate to there being a lot of other people who have the same, that same desire and that same, you know, sort of that same reflex of like, wow, they can see how a watch would be nice to have. And if that's the case, you know, definitely, hopefully they sell well and then, you know, there'll be a follow-on effect in terms of people who just got their new watch are looking for apps to put on it. And so that's sort of what got me into it in the first place.
0: What was the kind of process that you went through in coming up with the apps uh, that you're going to obviously release for the watch? Because, I mean, you've been working on it and kind of talking about it for, well, I mean, since they kind of announced it last year. So, is there a process by which you kind of determined which apps that you already have available that you you know making Apple Watch extensions for and um, you know new apps that you're creating for the watch?
1: Sure. So, the first approximation of the process was just sitting down with all of my existing apps, which is a non-significant list, and thinking about what would make sense for each of them, if anything. And for some of the apps, I'm not sure if it mirrored, just it doesn't really make sense. It wasn't really compelling to me. Um, and so at least for, you know, so version one, I was like, i probably won't do anything with that. I'll just, you know, sort of, I'll wait off for, for later. Um, but for most of my apps, I was, I found usually there's some part of the, of the app's experience that works well on the watch. It's rarely the whole part of the app. It's typically there's a part of it and it's tried to kind of boil the app down into the thing that would be most useful to have available always in reach. And so it was just sort of going through and thinking about them in that way. And it's a bit of a tricky process because we don't have, you know, we, we don't have Apple watches yet. So it's been like the number of paper mock-ups or all the crazy schemes I've done to mirror prototypes and things onto onto my phone, which I, you know, sort of strap onto my wrist and walk around with a phone strapped to my wrist to get a sense of the size of things and <laughs> things is a little bit crazy, but eventually you can kind of get a sense of what might work. Yeah. Um and so then I just went through that. And then for the new stuff, I just sat down and was like, what could I do on a tiny screen that doesn't have direct graphics, you know, graphics thing, that is very basic and structured in the way that we can implement apps, things that can only exist, you know, in an, in an iPhone's nearby. And I just came up with a list, and the things that I thought would be, the, you know, the funnest to work on, the easiest to work on, and potentially have the biggest appeal, were the ones that, um, you know, I dived into and started building. Yeah, cool. You've made what, to
2: me, seemed like a... um I don't know, a a very difficult task sounds easy. So I've been thinking about the watch as well, but I've been really struggling with the idea of not being able to have one and wear one and use the apps that Apple have written for it. I feel a little bit constrained in how well I'm going to be able to understand it as a platform. So I guess I have taken a bit of a, wait-and-see approach because I kind of, by necessity, my lack of imagination, I, I, need, I feel like I need to live with it for a while before I understand it enough to then have ideas of, of my own. But it sounds like you're able to sort of take that leap and can you know imagine clearly enough what it's going to be like to use to think through what
1: functionality is going to be useful in that form factor. Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't think you're doing yourself enough credit there in terms of like it, there is – a comfort that I have just developed over the years of not being worried about being horribly wrong. Um, that I think many of the things that I'm building for version one, for day one even, um, of the Apple Watch are probably not going to work out for me. And some of it, I think, is just about being growing comfortable with that and understanding that it's like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm going to own the fact that I have no idea what I'm doing, that other than, you know, a small group of people in Cupertino, there aren't developed, very many developers who really know what the Apple Watch is like to live with. And so mm. I'm just going to kind of guess. And I'm just going to kind of, I'm gonna just going to see, see where that goes. Um, and I guess the, the gamble I'm taking is that just trying something, even if it's not a good idea, is probably, is, is in some ways valuable in and of itself. That having the experience of just tried to build, trying to build anything is in and of itself kind of useful. And yeah, so definitely. that's sort of where, where I started from. It's just like, well, I don't know. I don't really know. Like, and I just got comfortable with the fact that there's no way to know. And so if I want to be there early on, I'm just going to have to guess.
2: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, I can, I can see how it pays dividends in the sense, using continuing the financial analogy here, that the investment you, of, you make of your time in learning this new platform independently of whether any of the day one apps sort of take off, it's going to pay dividends in the sense that your understanding will be further developed than anyone else's by way of the your experience of, of doing these first apps. Um, so you're more likely to find that great idea that makes perfect sense on the platform. I've just started myself having a little bit of a look, um, started work on a glance, and already, I guess, a few days in, I'm realising that if I had done this sooner there is ample opportunity there to to learn a fair bit about, you know, just, just even understanding the technical limitations of the platform gets you to think about your apps in terms of, well, what, which bits can, could be surfaced as a glance and thinking about just technically, separate from sort of user interaction concerns or the whole reason for the app, just technically breaking an iPhone app into the bits that will actually run in the context of a WatchKit extension. I guess I've already started to learn a little bit more about how it all goes together and the best way to do that. It's probably a good time to start to transition into talking a little bit more about the technical stuff because I think our listeners would be interested in. Yeah. I, I don't think we can assume that everyone's actually, like, so I've only very recently installed the Xcode beaters with WatchKit and actually fired it up and created a new WatchKit project. I think there'd be lots of people in that boat as well that have been following along and reading a bit about it, but haven't actually gotten to the point of coding. Can you tell us, David, a little bit about the high-level structure of a watch app, where your code executes
1: and where you get opportunities to write code in terms of the different bits of the watch interface? Sure. So, at a basic level, what we what we have right now, and this will, I'm sure, change. I think Apple has even promised that we'll have fully native apps sometime later in the year. But for right now, what we have are WatchKit extensions, which are extensions in the same way that iOS eight got extensions for things like Today View widgets or Share Sheet widgets or those types of things. Like they're uh, little bits of code that run in parallel to your main your main iPhone app. And they're bundled exclusively with an iPhone app that you know, you can't submit just a WatchKit app on its own. It's going to be as part of an iPhone app or a universal app potentially, but you know the, the relevant part is the iPhone part. Um, and there are th- three, I believe, main sort of types of WatchKit extensions that we can write right now. Um, we can write notification um, extensions, so things that deal with a, you know, a notification that comes in Um, to the user's phone, whether that's a push notification or a local notification, whatever that looks like. But that notification that is displayed to the user on the watch, you know, it will be displayed to them. And then you can make um, either like the the simple version of that, which would just be, you know, you just the text and maybe a button or two, you know, it's accept or decline or something like that. Um, Or you can have more dynamic notifications where there's a bit more interactivity to them. Um, You can have glances, which are the simplest version of WatchKit possible, where it's basically you can just create a static view that's available if the user swipes up from the bottom of the watch face. Um, and these are just the closest thing to probably like a Today View widget on the phone, but they are very, very simple. And they are not interactive at all. They are just entirely a, a screen of static text and images um, that you can display to the user. And then the third type and the most sort of complicated thing is there is a full what they sort of like a watch kit app um, which is an app who that runs entirely on the phone and well, actually all three of these run entirely on the phone and are projected essentially up onto the watch um, via you know whatever dark magic Apple has to pull those two together but you run you the watch kit app is a very basic thing. You don't – oh, you. there's only, I think, eight UI elements or something like that. You have tables, labels, buttons, steppers, um, and switches or something along those lines. Um, and it's basic – and the app is just of you know, a combination of those things. You can either have a navigation-based app where you can sort of build a stack of views or a stack of pages, not views, or you can have a page-based app where you just swipe left and right between different uh, pages um, and like I said, they all run on the phone. And so you have – technically, it's a very different style of development than UIKit where you know you create a UI view and you can override draw rect and you can override you know, touches began, touches ended and those types of things. This is a very much – very limited in that way version of development where we have these few basic UI elements. You have to build them into a static storyboard that's actually static. You can't change many attributes of it. Um, At runtime, almost all of it has to be set up ahead of time, and then it just runs. And, you know, when the user taps a button on their watch, that touch is being turned into an event that gets sent, you know, wirelessly over Bluetooth to your phone. Your phone will, you know, the appropriate handler will get called for that. You can do whatever processing you want, and you can send any commands to be updated on the watch, as a result, um, but it's, that's a very—it's not a very tight cycle that you may have been, sort of been used to um, from you know from iOS development. It's very much something happens on the watch, it goes off to your extension, your extension reacts to that, sends the results back, um, and it's a very—and so you just kind of keep—it's almost like you're playing with the shadow copy of the app, and that's how we have to build apps at this point. Um, at some point, I'm sure we'll be able to build native apps, but as a result, you know they're just enti- they're just little extensions to your main app. And everything you have to do has to be able to be done uh, on the phone itself.
2: Yeah. So how did you find um, learning this for the first time? It sounds quite different. Some of the stuff I'm struggling with is just basic like UI layout. As I mentioned, I'm working on a glance and I believe they're template based. Yeah. But even things like just trying to figure out, okay, I want you know a label over here with this size and then another one positioned sort of relative to it. I'm kind of getting used to auto layout to the point where actually quite enjoy solving those little auto layout constraint puzzles but watchkit doesn't use auto layout does it it uses some other type of layout and i'm i'm really struggling to get my head around basic stuff just like how to get a view to look approximately like the one that i'm picturing
1: yes it definitely took a lot of time. It took some amount of time to get used to. the The thing that works out in our favor with WatchKit is that the entire programming guide for it is, I think, about forty, fifty pages or something like that. Like because it's such a constrained environment, there's only so many things that you can do and that you have to sort of learn about. And so, while it took a long time in terms of getting used to putting my head into the world where WatchKit apps exist. It was a bit of a transition, but once you get there, and once well, sort of once you get it, you kind of completely get it in a way that iOS, you know, is expansive now, and the, the number of frameworks and APIs and method calls and things you have to worry about is, you know, every every WWDC they're always bragging on about how they added, you know, sixteen hundred new APIs or and all this kind of crazy stuff, and WatchKit is so concise compared to that, that once you get it you can become very proficient with it once you kind of get over that next, that next thing. And the layout system is definitely kind of weird. In a strange way, I think I wrapped my head around it fairly well because it reminded me a lot of the way you used to make uh, Swing apps back in the old Java days, um, where you have like grid bag layouts and things like that. And some of the first programming I ever did was making Swing UI Java apps. And it has a very similar kind of feel to it where it's not really auto layout, and it's not really strict kind of declarative layout. It's this kind of weird combination of them where you're kind of building things somewhat sort of from top left to bottom right. And they just kind of, there's this apps kind of flow into where they want to go or, you know, sort of little parts flow into where they want to go. And everything has to be a group if you want it, to, you know, to not flow in a different direction. And so once you kind of wrap your head around it, you can get a get a hold of it, but It's very different than anything else. I mean, other than the language, um, you know, in terms of being Objective-C and having the Cocoa, you know, the foundation stuff the same, it's a very different way of building an app than what you would have been used to on iOS.
2: Yeah. That um, swing analogy is an interesting one. I did, that was, yeah, first year uni, second year uni or something, learning uh, programming for the first time using swings. Bringing back memories. Yeah, it is. I think I used Flow Layout. I can't even remember now. But yeah, maybe I should dust off my first-year uni textbooks, remember about layout managers. It actually also sounds kind of refreshing in the sense that um, you're completely right about iOS. I feel like I only ever know a small slither of what there is to know. So it must be incredibly refreshing to be able to like, fully understand the whole platform.
1: Yes. I mean, it's kind of cool in the so far as like, I'm, I don't think it's sort of bragging to say that I know everything that every, like, and I understand, I've I've experienced every Corner of WatchKit at this point, just from a few months of working on it full time, Yeah, because they're just, that's just all there is, uh, and obviously this will change over time, but it's nice to be it's, in some ways it reminds me of the old iPhone OS days, like when I, iPhone OS 2.0, you know, which is where I wrote my first apps on, obviously that was much more complicated than WatchKit is now, but you know back then, it was I had a pretty good understanding of all the different APIs that were available to me. And the reverse is, you know, you get to the point now where there's just so many different things that you can do and different classes that you can take advantage of. And it makes some things really powerful, but it's also, you know, kind of – it feels a little bit overwhelming. Like when I go to WWDC and I try and work out what I want to well, – you know, what I should be focused on. And there's so many different directions that, you know, the platform is pulling me in. Yeah. That it's kind of refreshing to be able to say, like, this is it. Yeah. Especially when you take into account third-party
2: things on iOS. Like I was just – I just downloaded yeah. um. Facebook's new IDE for React and React Native. We can talk about that another day, Jelly, if you're giving me a funny look. But that's just an example of all this. Not only are Apple taking iOS in all sorts of directions, you know, the third-party community are too with diff- completely different ways of building apps for, for iOS. And I guess WatchKit is still very much, you know, the first-party platform for, you know, other people haven't started to throw their ideas into the ring.
0: It's a bit difficult to throw your ideas into the ring at this point. It's pretty locked down as far as what you're able to do.
2: Hey, I've got some even just, you know, given that I've got the world's foremost watch kit expert in a conversation with me at the moment, (laughs) I feel like I need to just ask for some tips with my my specific programming problems at the moment. So just everyone else excuse me while I ask for some specifics. In my glance that I'm working on, I notice that there's kind of three... Bits of code that execute when the glance starts up, there's, you know, in it, awake with context and will activate. Firstly, I can't figure out what is meant to go where, whether all my stuff should be in one of those or some should be in each of those. And then secondly, I'm a bit worried about um, kicking off some of the stuff I need to do in my glance is load fresh data from the network. Um, and I'm not sure mm-hmm. about how to do that in, 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 terms of iOS or even a today view widget, um, I'm comfortable with kicking off a asynchronous task to retrieve stuff from the network. And when it comes back, switching to the main thread and updating the UI, can you do that in a glance or does the UI need to be kind of fully rendered and completely finished by the time we'll activate ends, or can you actually kick off some async code in WillActivate will activate and have a completion block that then modifies the UI?
1: Sure, so the first thing in terms of the life cycle they 're called for different reasons um, in terms of will activate will activate is called any time the glance is made visible, which may or may not be called like it 'll be called at least once for you know sort of once for, for uh, a life of the glance, but it could potentially be called many times, and so if you know if the also- user say swiped up. And then swiped left, right, left, right, left, right, you know, with your glance, yep. it'll become – it's sort of the – in some ways it's the difference between like view did load and view and will, will appear, appear. Right. Um, in iOS yep. where the activation is that – the equivalent of the will appear part. And so you want to put things that make sense to be updated or be called whenever it becomes visible in that one. Uh, Versus the, you know, the the sort of the init and um, awake with context type of stuff is called when it's, you know, being brought to life to start with. Um, And so you wouldn't want necessarily, if there's some concept of freshness in your, what you're displaying to the user, if you you only ever refresh that on the, you know, awake with uh, the init with the init method or the awake with context methods, um, they may that, that, you know, they wouldn't be updated then potentially after the app, you know, if the user went away and then came back quickly, it may not have, you know, I, a lot of these things, you never know exactly what's going to happen in terms of if it's going to pull, pull your glance completely down or bring it fully back or, yeah. you know, if it's going to take it down and then rebuild it from scratch. But in the, I think the best analogy for that side of things is to think about it in some ways of the same way that you would with a view controller with, you know, view did load and, Sort of the view will appear kind of stuff, and so you yep. want to do your architectural building it up in the the init and awake, um, but then like in the will activate, will deactivate type of things. That's where you're putting things that are more about freshness and about reacting to when the user first, you know, when, when the user starts looking at it. Yeah, I think that makes uh, sense. In terms of the what to do with loading data, this is probably the hardest problem about building watchKit apps at this point. The strange thing about watch it about watch kid apps in general, and obviously this is like we were saying earlier, where it's all kind of speculative. But based on the kind of interactions your users are probably going to have with them, is that they're going to be ridiculously short lived, um, because the nature of having something on your wrist, part of the, the advantage is that you can just raise your wrist, look at something, and then put your wrist down. Yeah, and so. You know, you're probably going to like think the human interface guidelines refer to this. Like, if you if you measure the interaction with an with an iPhone, your app, your iPhone app in minutes, you know, you'll be measuring that same experience on your iWatch app in seconds. Mm-hmm. And so everything is so scaled down that sort of if you're if you're kind of viewing it as as soon as they ro- open up the glance, if you then kick off a request to go and get data from the network and come back, they may have already put their wrist down before that data is back. If that takes anything, you know, like maybe if they're on a very fast connection connecting to a very fast web server, it'll come back quick enough. But if it's taking three or four seconds to get the data back, that's probably not Mm. going to work in that context in a way that it may work for an iPhone app where there's sort of a different level of investment that the user has done in pulling out their phone, unlocking it, launching your app. Um, And so a lot of what I've had to do in my apps is work out clever, more clever caching strategies so that I have something to show them right away. And then often what I'll do is I'll kick off a request to go and see if there's something new, if there's something um, new that I can display to them. But otherwise, I'm trying to have had my main iPhone app make sure that there's a nice, fresh, reasonable amount of data that's relevant to the user available at all times.
2: That's a really interesting challenge. So say, for example, at the app, a glance that shows you stock prices. And so you might want to quickly glance at your phone to see if uh, you should say buy or sell the stock that you're trading that day. Um, obviously, you want up-to-date information. So sure. if possible, you want the stock price as of a moment ago, not the stock price as of three hours ago. Um, but you're right. When you When the glance first activates, it's unlikely to have fresh data. So you're saying what you'd suggest is displaying the most recent data you've got from the phone and then kick off a request. And you're also doing some stuff on the phone to make sure you have data that's as recent as it can be available at all times. Yes. What are you doing on the phone to be able to do that? Are you using um, things like content available push notifications to regularly push new content to the phone? Or are you doing some other sort of background mode so that the phone can download new data for the watch? Before the user's likely to look at their
1: watch, and it's really all of the above. Um, yeah. And obviously, every every situation is going to be different. So, like in the case of if you really are genuinely trying to show real time data to the user that is absolutely real time, it's going to be really hard to do that in in a, in a practical way on the uh, in WatchKit as it is now. Like you can so probably do it with content available pushes, you know. But trying to imagine that's like every time the stock price changes, you send them a content available push. Yeah, is probably going to get a little bit out of hand, yeah. but something like that might work for a lot of applications where you send a content-available push so that the phone um, can have a very uh, you know a very recent version of whatever it is that you're trying to display available at all, at a moment's notice. Essentially, um, the same thing you can do with background app refresh. Um, you know, may as well turn that on and make sure that your app is also polling for for data as makes sense for your application. Um, and whatever the data that you're displaying is will determine how aggressively you have to get with that, um, but something like that is probably going to be you know make sense and then probably also it's in, in a lot of cases it probably makes sense to make clear to the user how old the data is um in terms of having like a lot of the glances especially have sort of a little footer at the bottom of them in terms of their for their template, and a lot of what i 'm p- Tentending is putting in there is if it makes sense is to say, you know, this was, this is the data as of whatever time it was, you know, and so they can have at least make sure that they're not confused as to why it isn't up to date. If I haven't been able to get the data there ready for them ahead of time. And then, you know, like I said, I do also go and pull like you may as you can, you are connected to, you know, to a powerful information phone, it can go and grab new data. And if the user has held their wrist up long enough for you know from when you that kicks off to go get the data for you to parse it serialize it and present it to them go ahead and you can update the ui in the glance i mean you, it's it's fully supportive of that type of a thing you can do asynchronous data display it's just you can't rely on it you know it would be a very yeah. I, don't, I don't think it would be a wise user interaction sort of design if you every time they wanted to look at the app they had to wait for the data to come from the server
0: Glances show up when the phone's not actually available, don't they? But they can't obviously get data if the phone isn't available. So, I mean, it makes sense that you would have at least the most recent possible data showing
2: at all times. I mean, can you, or can you not open up?
1: Nothing in WatchKit happens without a phone. Mm.
2: It's interesting though, but like the, 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 the thing that the glance viewer, right, that's running on the watch um presumably would still run in some way even if the phone wasn't there but it would probably i guess show you screenshots of what the glances looked like when they were last running like app switcher on iOS does? it might
1: be i don't know the details but i know you're nothing's going to there's, no, there's nothing dynamic is going to happen anyway yeah, without yeah. A, without a, a phone involved
0: yeah. but i mean there's surely that like surely that when you if you walk away from your phone and the watch loses connection like it's not just going to not show you anything at all it's going to be really interesting that, to find out what the answer to these questions that's is. A really, yeah. Because, I mean, that would be a little bit weird. Some of the, They would kind of look at their watch and suddenly everything is... All the third-party stuff is completely gone. So, is there then like a, yeah, like a screenshot of a glance or something that shows? And that way you could have... I don't know. That's weird.
1: Hmm. It's not something we could test either. Yeah. I don't think we know the answer yet, but I think... Everything I've heard from evangelists and people in terms of when they're in the developer forums talking about it, it's like, in some ways, that's not your problem. Your apps run on the phone. And when the phone's not connected to the watch, your app is obviously then not running, and it's up to them, you know, it's, it's up to Apple to make that experience meaningful and understandable to their customer as to, or to our customer as to why it's not working. Yeah. Um, there's not much we can do about it because that's where our, our code, nothing's, nothing that we're doing is running on the phone or running on the watch. So.
0: so
3: I saw you tweeting about how you achieved animation in Pedometer++. You had the graph animating onto the screen of the watch. And from what I understand, yes. you can, there's no core animation as we know it. In nope. watch kit so i'd love to hear more about how you achieve
1: that sure so if you want to do anything on the watch that is in any way animated i guess there, there are two there are two basic things the first there's a couple of controls that apple gives you out of the box that are somewhat animated like you can have a label that is a time-based thing so either like a clock or you can have something that is a countdown timer or a count up timer that uh, it's doing. It's not really animating in that same way, but it's it's doing the update on the watch for you. So you're not every second sending over a set the text to this, set the text to this. There's that type of animation, which is very constrained, obviously, just to time based things. Everything else is done with frame animations or essentially animated GIFs. Like the entire UI of, if you have anything dynamic, is just essentially a series of animated GIFs. Obviously, they're not GIFs. They're the UI, the animated UI image objects that you can create in iOS. But to build those as a developer, you build this every animation. You have to you know, go frame by frame and render what it is that you want the screen to look like. And you end up taking that, you're taking the actual image itself and turning it into a series of frames. And so, like, in the example you gave with pedometer plus plus, where I have a bar graph that, um, you know, it starts at the bottom and animates up to its full height. I do that by having pre rendered, you know, many, 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 um frames so you know there's one where the bar is all the way in the bottom and there's you know one pixel up one pixel up one pixel up or whatever you know as it goes all the way up to um, the height i need and i just animate the appropriate value between that Um, and you take all these sort of assets and you 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 pre-render them you bundle them into your extension um, which will be you know then available on the watch so that you can say animate from this frame to this frame and it takes and, and just plays those images back and forth, Um, but that's the only way that you can do anything, to, any sort of in an anima, in an animated fashion on the watch. And so you end up building these kind of crazy. Like I have a whole bunch of projects. Like most of the apps, I just I'm I'm most comfortable with doing that type of work in Core Graphics because that's obviously what how I've done animation for years. And so what I've ended up doing is just building a bunch of kind of custom UI views in test projects that render a frame of what they would do. And then they just sort of snapshot that into a PNG, write it to disk, and then it renders the next frame and then does the same thing over and over again. And so I can just kind of rely on the same tools that I would use in Core core Graphics, but I'm just sort of rendering the output um, to images that are then run on the watch. So what frame rate does the watch run at? Is it 60 frames? I believe so. Um uh, I don't think there is a specific guarantee as far as I know. It is along the lines of you know it'll, it will it will cuz when you do the animation you say run this many frames over this per- this duration and it will work out the frame rate it should show each frame as a result of obviously that calculation. Um and I think we've been told to not you never have to do more than 60 frames per second, you know, so in terms of if you had a 1 second animation, you would never need more than 60 frames. Whether it's actually going to display at 60 frames on the watch, I'm sure is just like on iOS, dependent on a variety of other things, how many other things are rendering, how busy things are generally. Um, But that's sort of the general guidelines we've had, I believe, is it'll never be faster than 60 frames a second, but it may not get to there either. But functionally, you shouldn't really have to worry about that because you do the best you can, and then the watch will do the best it can, and that's the best we can do.
3: So that begs the question as well, then, do you think all the best apps are just going to custom render their entire UI into, I guess, image views instead of using the limited
1: eight components that we have? I would be very surprised if that was the case, mostly because if you were to do that, which theoretically you could, and this was like, it was something that I thought about doing um, in the early days of WatchKit was like, I wonder if I could build essentially an entire UI framework built on, you know, on UIKit using UI views that I run on the phone and then ship over to the watch. Um, and theoretically, you could. It would be kind of crazy, but you could do it. The problem is that obviously every frame in that case, if they're dynamically generated at runtime, has to be taken and shipped over to the watch over Bluetooth and then deserialized and displayed. And so it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get anything near what you would want in terms of interactivity and performance and battery life and all those things. If you know, Even if you weren't doing it 60 frames a second, even if you were only doing a few frames a second, to be able to take that image, render it, send it over Bluetooth to the watch, display it, have the user do something, and then sending that back and going back and forth – I don't think that's the type of model that the system is optimized for. Like, There's just too too much wireless data that you'd need to be transferring. I think the best apps are going to be apps that instead use animation. The, The few little touches of animation that we can do are going to be just adding little touches of liveliness into the app so that it feels more rich and it feels more... It, you know it, it it just it has more personality as a result that it isn't just it doesn't just feel like everything is just those basic 7 UI components that all watch caps can use um so it feels a bit more lively but functionally it is just those things with a few images that you've are you know sort of static and bundled in the app were installed onto the watch when the app was first installed um so nothing's nothing other than you know commands is being sent over the wire because I think that, you know that, that, that those are going to be very quick to move. You know, if it just says animate from this to here to here with this duration, you know, even if you think about the number of bytes, I'm sure that's being compressed down to and sent over to the watch, it'll be almost instantaneous. Versus taking an image, even though it's small, it's only 300 and something by 300 and something, like it's not big, but it's still going to be bigger than just sending a few bytes of a you know of a command.
3: Sounds a lot like u i dynamics restraint is the key to success
1: yes, and I think that also fits with the general philosophy of watch control no, I, I
2: want i want particle effects on my watch you know I want smoke and flames <laughs> it's,
1: you you can do it in so insofar as you you can pre render them. Okay, you know it's what I do. So if I don't know if you're familiar with In Pedometer++, one of my apps. If you hit your day, if you hit your goal, you get confetti. I vaguely
2: remember that. And so I, I, <laughs> I had a I had a 29 day run just after Christmas, and I haven't hit had a whole successful day since the run broke. It's quite sad. So I, I vaguely remember that confetti it used to make me feel good.
1: I, I love the confetti. So for that feature, I did pre-render confetti for the app. Oh, cool. So obviously it's the same confetti every time, whereas on the phone, that confetti is much more of a – it's an actual dynamic particle system that's diff- you know, slightly different every time. Yep. On the watch, it's exactly the same thing. It's just I recorded 100 frames of confetti falling from the sky, but it works. You know, It still gets that same point across.
2: This this might be what it takes to get me walking again. I just quickly looked. The last day I got my target was the nineteenth of January. That's sad.
0: Uh, no, I have to look mine up. <laughs> Surprising, no one. My predominant plus plus thing is very low today.
2: Yeah, two hundred eighty-seven steps for me. Days only, it's only just begun. Cue the music. <laughs> is anyone else carpenter's fan yeah. here? No. Okay. I'm
3: on nine thousand two hundred sixty-eight.
2: Oh, you got to go for but a walk around the, the couch. Yeah, you yeah. got to do laps in the kitchen <laughs> yeah, before yeah. you go to bed, man.
0: I think the last time I got
2: one yeah. was I
0: got a good day was the twenty eighth of February. Oh it's, it's I got eleven thousand steps. Hard dang. Day. I don't think I've ever got that many steps.
3: You know, interestingly, yeah. Pedometer Plus Plus is the only third party today extension I use. It's the only one I've
1: found useful. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I've heard of a lot of people who it's weird with the today view widgets, and in some ways I guess the same thing will happen with Watch apps where you kind of put your main app out of a job if you do it well for certain yeah. kinds of apps. Because if you're doing, if you're showing, it's much more convenient to be able to view that data from just swiping down anywhere on your iPhone. No matter what you're doing, you just swipe down, you can see the display. Yeah. Um, and so if you do it well, there's no reason to run, launch the main app in the first place. It's kind of a same, I imagine the same thing will happen with watches. I think
2: that is a great point. And potentially challenging for someone who, like me, is in sort of client services in that sometimes a sort of naive position might be if you're commissioning an app that I want one that, you know, the metrics of, of iPhone apps are all often about how many times it's launched, how many people download it, how often they spend using it, how long they spend using it each time they use it. And it can be, um, I think, challenging people's preconceptions to sort of say, you know, that might not be the most meaningful way to measure how valuable your app is to a user. In some cases, it might be um, how little time do they spend using it. Like, if you can make it so they don't yep. need to launch your app, but you can get the information from your app into other places like the Today View or the, the Watch, then the app actually may be much more valuable to people, but not in ways that people are used to measuring, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, under, it's understanding the problem, too. Like, just to extend that with parameter, my average session length in Pedometer++ Plus is 2 seconds which makes sense the app just shows you a number and then you can just move on with your life but yeah, if, if i was trying to if i was driven by that number to try and make it longer i would almost certainly make the app worse um, yeah. if, if if i forced you to have to dig around for data or to do things in a more awkward way so you have to understand the problem in the first place
0: yeah i mean i kind of feel the same way uh developing Gifrapped right because the whole idea of gif wrapped is that you are able to like pull something out really quickly to throw into a message so i think of the shorter the time is that people are using it the better the experience has been for the most part i mean there's the whole curating a library thing but uh, you know the average sometimes the average needs to be shorter in
2: order to make things make things better yeah yeah Yeah. what do you think this means in terms of the complexity of iphone apps like at the moment i think apple have a sort of minimum requirement in in-app review, that if your app is not sufficiently useful, they won't approve it. Um, if I was to do a app with a WatchKit extension, where the Watch Kit extension provided the sort of utility that we're talking about here, surfacing timely information on the watch in a glance that you can quickly look at and get the information and then get on with your life. But all my phone app did was provide the sort of settings for the Watch app. Do you think that would make it through review? Or do you think that the phone app still, like, are Apple going to lower that bar of, how functional a phone app needs to be if it's got a WatchKit extension? Or do you think they're still going to require the same?
1: I think, I mean, we we don't have review guidelines for WatchKit apps at this point. So it's hard to know with certainty. Um, My suspicion, though, is that it's going to be the same thing as they did in some ways with extensions on iOS 8. And an example of that are, say, uh, third-party keyboards, where the extension is the only use, like I have a third-party keyboard for uh, entering emoji. And the only useful part of that app is the extension. The host app is basically just a set of instructions to how on how to install it in the you know in into your settings. And there's a link, I think, to email me if you have any trouble, kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So the app, like, if I just submitted that app on its own to the app store without the extension, you know, it'd be would be rejected because it's like it doesn't do anything. Um. But because the the point of the mm. app is the extension. I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's the same type of rules for WatchKit. That, as long as there is some part of your app that is genuinely useful, then you'll be fine.
2: Okay, uh, that's that's other thing that makes sense. Um, now that you say it like that, I'm less worried. I also kind of wonder about with that phone app and Watch app relationship. What do you think is appropriate to do on the watch, and what's appropriate to do on the phone? So, say going back to my um stock price example. Um I could imagine that from a user's perspective you could potentially meet all of their needs on the watch with just a glance. You know, if you had a a phone app that let you um monitor stock prices and in that phone app you could you know pick your favorite stocks to keep track of. Uh and then on the watch all you had was a glance to show you the current price of your favorite stocks. From a user's perspective I could almost imagine that working. But I imagine that the watch kit app itself the thing that you tap on with the thing that launches when you tap a, an icon on the watch's home screen. I imagine that's got to do something as well. So maybe maybe I could, as a minimal watch app, get away with one of the page-based navigations where I have a, a one-page summary for each stock price. So you could swipe back and forth between your stock prices and then a glance that shows you sort of a condensed summary view of it all. Do you think that that's sufficient if there was no functionality on the watch for actually editing that list of favorites and searching for a new stock price and adding it to your list of favorites? Do you think it would be, you could get away with only providing that UI on the phone and that people would like configure, you know, what they wanted to see on their watch in the phone app and just use the watch as a viewer? Or do you think that it's necessary to provide that sort of configuration UI on the watch as well?
1: I think in general, it would almost probably be encouraged to try and keep the watch kit portion as streamlined as possible. Um, that I think a lot of what Apple, like the Human Interface Guidelines, is driving towards is that the watch is not the place that the user should be spending lots of time fiddling with stuff necessarily. It should be much more getting in and getting out. Um, and so if you, you know, doing a lot of the setting and configuration and those types of things on the phone, in general, I think makes sense. Like there are a few of the, the apps that I've been working on where there's some, I wouldn't say... Configuration is probably not the right word, but like, there's a couple of little options that you can toggle. But generally speaking, almost all of it's configured on the phone, and the watch is purely a, a an ex. You know, it is truly an extension of that phone app. It is not necessarily the app in and of itself. Yeah. Um. And it's also probably worth saying. I think you don't even have to build a watch kit app if you don't want to. You can also just. I think you can just have a glance, and you could just have that as an app.
2: Right. Okay. I, I wasn't aware of that. In Xcode, it seems that when you create a watch kit, when you add a watch kit extension to an app and you choose that you want a glance, by default it gives you two storyboards, one for the glance and one for the app itself. Yeah.
1: But I have a vague recollection that if you deleted the the other entry point, it should still work. I'm not totally sure on that, though. But it may even be – I know you can can just do the notifications, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, okay. But anyway, the core point is that – Making a watch kit app as straightforward as possible, I think, has a lot of value. Have making yep. it be something that the user isn't fiddling about in, because the watch's screen is tiny. Yeah, um, of like in a good way. It's you're going to wear it around all day. You don't want this big honking yep. screen, but it's small. It's not designed for doing lots of heavy ent- you know, data entry and things like that. Like, I wouldn't want to necessarily – like, you're not going to have a keyboard to enter your ticker stock symbol for your yeah, stock exactly. prices or things like that. Like
2: Yeah, so you'd have to browse A to Z list <laughs> of all the stock symbols in the world. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. No, I think, I think what you're saying completely confirms my suspicions, which is that, you know, the watch is really about um, – Quick interactions, so surfacing information and and maybe responding to questions. Like maybe in my hypothetical app, there were there could be functionality to um you know keep track of a price and if it falls below a certain amount, ask me if I want to sell, and it could give me a notification where I could have a buy and sell button or something. Sure. So simple interactions where you make a decision and and that's it, you're done, versus not so much the kind of longer-running interactions where I'm browsing through lots of lists and typing in information. and Trying to curate a set of GIFs. Yeah, you wouldn't curate your GIFs. you just pick a GIF in (laughs) the GIF-wrapped watch extension.
1: And because it's also probably worth keeping in mind that in any use of the Apple Watch, you're always going to have your phone with you. Mm. Sort of by definition, it is always going to be ostensibly within arm's reach of you. And so it's not quite the case where having to do the configuration on your phone isn't quite as arduous as it's not like, okay, you have to configure this app on your Mac. Um, yeah. and then once you've configured it on your mac then that's you know that's how it works that would be kind of annoying but your phone is always in your pocket it's it it has to be there in order for the watch kit app to work in the first place yeah so putting the appropriate complexity onto the f- phone just sort of makes sense yeah so that's fascinating it begs the question of what's going to happen if and when we i mean
2: i guess when we get a more sophisticated watch sdk that if if we do get the ability to run native code directly on the watch um you know how, how much complexity are we going to want to move there will you end up get this getting this sort of bifurcation of watch apps where some people stick with the old model current model which will be old and have a lot of the logic and complexity on the phone and others increase the complexity of the watch interface with the view of it letting it run independently of the phone it's interesting
1: yeah yeah i mean and my guess on that is just it's going to all come it's going to come down to the use case for the app and for why it, why it would be useful to run without the phone because anything that work, anything that's going to like be internet based, that's going to require a network connection. It, at least in the first ver, you know, the first hardware is going to need a phone.
2: Yeah, maybe it'll be more like allowing everyone to do apps like that hotel chain that lets you do a use your watch as a keyless entry sort of thing. Obviously, they've got access to the NFC hardware on the watch, so maybe it's that sort of thing, letting you read, read and write to sensors and things on the watch natively. And still doing the main yeah. sort of networking on the phone. And-
1: yeah, exactly. Or you could imagine, you know, like it, it can play music files, but you could imagine a podcast client wanting to store its own audio files there. Um, or that type of an application, something something that needs to be able to run, you know, be useful to run without the phone. That it can be yeah. completely self-contained and run that way. Yeah. I could see that making a lot, a lot of sense to be a native app.
0: If anybody wants to kind of find out more uh, about developing for WatchKit, you've been doing a series, David, uh, about like the process that you've been going through. Do you want to give some details about that?
1: Sure. So since, I guess, even before WatchKit was uh, announced, I've been doing a series um, that I call As I Learn WatchKit, just on my blog, which is david-smith.org. And if you go to david-smith.org slash watchkit, um, you can see all the articles there. And it's just a, a long series of... Things. Some of them are podcasts, some of them are videos, some of them are just blog posts, Um, just things that over the last three or four months, whatever it's been, um, that anytime I learn something new or make a discovery or come across something, I try and document it and put it out there just so that hopefully it can be useful to someone else.
0: And are there any sort of resources that you've found useful as you've been learning WatchKit?
1: Honestly, Apple's documentation for it has been very helpful and good in this. Like I was saying earlier, because it's such a concise set of APIs and such a consult- sort of a concise vision for what you can do, yep. um, I found that to just be very helpful, like reading the programming guide, reading the human interface guide, like in a way that I wouldn't recommend if someone says, hey, I'm trying to get into uh, iOS to just say like, okay, well, go to the developer portal and open up the resource library and read everything. That would be insane for WatchKit, you probably could. And that would probably be a very, you know, if you were thinking of getting into it, it would be a very productive afternoon. And it would probably only be an afternoon um, to have read through all the appropriate documentation for you know for things. Um, and I think that's probably the best place to go um, to get started. Hey, cool. I can see you've got a video here about
2: understanding WatchKit layout. That's, that's going to be my next step. I do.
0: So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, where are you on the internet?
1: Sure. I'm uh, underscore David Smith on Twitter and you can email me David at developingperspective.com.
0: Cool. All right. Well,
2: if uh, any- I've got one oh.
1: final question. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which watch are you going to get? Have you chosen? Are you ready to pre-order? Uh, sure. So I'm probably going to buy, well, I'll probably buy two just because they're different sizes. And so I'll probably get um a, th- a 38 and a 42 millimeter, in the black sport model. There you go. That's what I'm expecting to sort of blindly pre- pre-order at this point. I'm, I'm going to do the same, but not black.
2: I'm going to go for the uh, aluminium, a 38 and a 42. I'm going to try and convince my wife to wear one regularly because I feel like the biggest part of this device that I yet don't understand is how it's going to be used in sort of personal communication between people. Um, so I'm going to order yes. her one. And at least get her to wear it for the for fourteen days, and hopefully during that time she'll decide that she wants to keep it, and, and then I'll have longer to understand it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does make me laugh slightly that the, one of the key features that Apple likes to talk about is the you know and they dedicated a, oh there's only like two buttons on the whole thing, and one of them is about this that personal communication between people, you know, and sending people heartbeats and drawing pictures and things, um, and it made me laugh a little bit when I think about the fact that I imagine for a long time. People at Apple have had it, you know, have had watches, and it, as it's been in development, and I think you know, it's even been widely reported that you know, there's a large number of Apple employees who are wearing it on a daily basis. Um, but the funny thing is, I imagine very few of their spouses are or significant others are have been wearing it. So, who
2: are they sending their heartbeats to? <laughs> who,
1: who are they sending their heartbeat to? Who are they drawing pictures to? Because, um, yeah, that's something that I look forward to is being able to have that kind of personal, very lightweight personal interaction with my wife, you know, she's wearing a watch just to be able to, you know, it's like, it's kind of cool to be able to tap her on the wrist wherever she is. Um, and you know, just let her know that I'm thinking about her. So that's something I'm looking forward to, but it does make me laugh to think of all those Apple engineers sending each other their heartbeat. Yeah. definitely. <laughs> and to be honest, I want to try that
2: out. Cause I'm not convinced. Like I just don't know. I I've, I've been so cynical in the past when Apple have come out with things and I've gone, oh, I'm never going to use that. And it turns out I get it and it becomes, you know, indispensable. And this is one of those situations again where I'm like, am I really going to do that sort of thing? It just seems a little bit, I don't know. But I feel like I need to give it a go in order to answer that question. Um, and I think as people developing apps yes. for these devices, we need to understand, you know, how people are going to use them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> Thank you. I can wrap up. Yeah. Go to work.
0: Are you gonna are you gonna do follow up in the middle? Do you need to? Actually, we have got any- some follow up. <laughs> no, we can wait didn't. till next time. If you need, if you would like to read anything. That we uh, that we mentioned or discussed, uh, we'll be linking to like well David Smith's resources and stuff on, in the show notes. They are at mobilecouch.co forward slash fifty four. I think I've completely and utterly forgotten what number of episode this is. I will change it in post if I need to. If you would like to send us an Email, you can do that as well. Get in touch with us. Uh, you can email us the old school way at hello at mobilecouch.co or you can jump on the website uh, and there's a form at mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Yeah, awesome. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us individually, Jake is on Twitter. That's J McMullen, J M A C M U L L I N. Ben is Ben Trangrove, B E N T R E N G R O V E. And I am Jelly Bean soup and david is underscore david smith as was mentioned like a half an hour ago so thanks for joining us david it was amazing to have you on the uh the imaginary couch
1: thank you for having me it's a like i said it's a very comfortable place to sit yeah
0: and uh thanks everybody for for listening it's been an amazing episode i was so excited about this i'm so excited about it still thank you for listening we look forward to talking to you again in two more weeks time we will see you then goodbye Bye. bye bye